Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by podcaster and writer Emily Gagne and Norm Wilner, digital releasing programmer for TIFF and producer and host of the Someone Else's Movie podcast. 1999 was a fantastic year for Brendan Fraser. Sure, his career up until that point had been no slouch, literally slouching onto the Hollywood big screen in 1992's Encino Man and Into Our Hearts. Blessed with a fish-out-of-water charisma, there was something fresh about the way he took in the world, usually California, that audiences couldn't get enough of in the 90s. Despite a career that was seemingly skyrocketing into the early 2000s, Fraser's career fell off, but thankfully now he's enjoying a career renaissance. Today, we're looking at two movies from 1999, one that plays perfectly into his comedic chops, and the second which made him an action star. Now, Norm, you are a self-proclaimed Brendan Booster. Why do you think people respond to him the way they do. Is it boost? I'm like, I think I want to like a Fraser knot or something. There's got to be a better, there's <laughs> got to be a better term. Um, I think honestly, it's because he's so pure. Brendan yeah. Fraser has always had the ability to radiate. Sometimes it's charisma, sometimes it's joy, sometimes it's glee, sometimes it's confusion. He's great at confusion. Um, and his comic timing for someone who is built like he is and looks like he does, it's incongruous in exactly the right way. So you are constantly looking closer. And I think the fact that he started with Encino Man, where they got so lucky that they cast someone who was funny as well as built like a caveman, like someone who could sell the loincloth, but also could do the comic bits. There's a moment where he does a double or triple take on a brain freeze moment, like this little bit that he does with Polly Shore. And I saw that in a the theater. I saw that at a press screening. Um, at the in the basement of the Uptown in the late lamented Uptown 2 in, in Toronto with, I guess, 300 people who were all radio contest winners. And with those things, nobody knows what they're going to get. They just know that the name of the movie and maybe the poster and sometimes an audience will turn on a film really fast. Um, <laughs> but the brain freeze moment in Encino Man, you could tell like you were you were feeling this guy become a star because he'd been funny, he'd been interesting, and now suddenly it's just like, oh, no, no, he's dominating. Like, he is this, he's the movie. Well, especially when you think them trying to make Pauly Shore one of the biggest stars on the yeah. planet at that time, and he takes that movie over from Pauly Shore, which is Oh, it's not wild. even a contest. I mean, Megan Ward, who has one scene at the beginning and one scene at the end, is more interesting than Pauly Shore in that movie. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's, sure. it's incredible. And, and I know that that was not the expected result. That, that Fraser no. did not know this was going to launch his career. He was chasing legitimate work in things like school time. Like he was already auditioning for real movies, quote unquote, real movies. And somehow this is like the, the trigger to his entire career where you can see someone with range and skill, but also a willingness to go for it. Like he has no self-consciousness as an actor, which is why the scenes in Gods and Monsters where he's just idly amusing himself while mowing a lawn are so compelling yep. because who is this guy? Why have I never seen him in anything? What is he doing? He's in, I can't stop looking at this goof, the goofy caveman man. Um, and the <laughs> idea now that he is, you know, he's working with Darren Aronofsky and he's, he's become and Soderbergh and, and, and suddenly he's, everyone is finally appreciating the guy he was all along. I marvel at it. I'm delighted that he ended up where he needed to be. I know it wasn't an easy road for him. And that some of the films that should have made him a huge star didn't take uh, in terms of dramatic things like The Quiet American, which is the one little jewel that unfortunately just it got lost in the, the Miramax stuff is what happened. It's the, they yeah. didn't get behind it after it premiered at TIFF. And so it just went away. But it's probably his best performance. And um, 20 years later, I think it's time people discover it. But for now, we'll talk about 
the stuff we loved when we were kids and all of that. And that will get people rolling and help him discovering. Yeah, the guy was 30 when I saw The Mummy. Who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> See, The Mummy was one of the first like intros to horror movies. 99 was like a big year for me of being oh, yeah. like, I am into horror and I'm an adult and I make my own <laughs> money working at a movie theater. So I'm going to go watch more movies and give it right back. And I think I've seen The Mummy probably 30 times at this point. Like I was a very big fan of The Mummy and mostly because of Brendan Fraser because he is perfect in that. But we're going to get into more of him. Uh, so tapping into the wide-eyed doofusness is exactly what our first movie does. Uh, it's another film like Dick before it, which makes me miss the mid-budget high-concept movies that are all too rare these days. Yes, like many films we've talked about in 99, some of the comedy is head-achingly cringe, but at the core is a pretty solid premise with a wonderfully committed performance not only from Frasier but from Christopher Walken, Sissy Spacek and a cabal of comedic Canadians. Emily, do you want to blast back to this past? I do, Becky. I, you know, you were talking about the mummy and how many times you've seen it. I feel like I the blast from the past is that for me. I also love the mummy, but blast from the past, it really stuck with me. I first was introduced, and please don't cringe, both of you, to Brendan in uh, George of the Jungle, the uh, film uh, adaptation. That's a good movie. Don't feel bad. It knows exactly yeah, what it, it is. is. And, it's good. And you're also not the only one. That movie was the one that got him a ton of work afterwards. Everyone saw that performance and was like, there is a man who, as Norm said, is very committed. <laughs> yes, yes. He's incredibly committed and his like uh his uh sort of tension with him and Leslie Mann in that movie, like there it, it's it's great. Anyways, very, very sexy Brendan Fraser, himbo vibes in that. And I feel like this movie kind of is similar in that, but there's a sweetness to this movie that I couldn't resist um and also a nostalgia factor not just for the 60s but also the 90s when i was watching it so if you want i'll get into the summary becky i can i can jump into that um Go for it. so in 1962 this couple which uh, christopher walken and sissy spacek uh think that nuclear war is happening and they retreat to their fallout shelter and uh sissy spacek is actually pregnant with a child at the time uh and they stay there for 35 years they've got all they need they've got like uh their own garden they've got canned goods they've got a whole setup like their house down there and they raise their kid adam down there for 35 years and after 35 years the door opens on the shelter and they need more food they need more supplies and they want adam to get a wife and he goes above ground and he finds out the truth is uh things have changed but uh, nuclear war was not happening, and uh, there is life above ground. And he meets, fittingly enough, a girl named Eve, uh, who is played by Alicia Silverstone. And uh, he falls in love and basically ends up having to convince his parents to uh, leave their underground shelter and embrace uh, the 90s. So uh, th that's pretty much it. And Adam is played by Brendan Fraser in full himbo mode, although he is very smart. Like he like schools everybody in this movie, which I also love. But they think he's dumb because he is. They mistake innocence for stupidity. Yes, yes that's it. That's it. He's like on the bus with this, this homeless guy. And he's like asking where to go to the grocery store. And the, the guy's like, I please get him off this bus. I, need, <laughs> I can't talk to this guy. He's too innocent. I can't deal with him. Anyways, it's a delightful movie that sort of like takes you back into the 60s but also i felt like this is a perfect time capsule of the 90s and sort of like like the swing dancing the outfits everything is like i was like i remember this i'm taken back to when i was a kid and i, I wanted to be alicia silverstone and wear uh my hair in those like tight ringlets that are so weird and wear like a little <laughs> a little mini sweater anyways i'm a blast from the past dan if you couldn't tell just a little bit. Uh, Norm, do you have strong feelings about Blast in the Past? I mean, not strong exactly. It's the kind of movie that I was charmed by at the time. I appreciated everything in it. Uh, it was part of the weird Christopher Walken is everywhere wave that happened in the late yes. 90s, which, you know, he completely deserved. Um, I think it was Pulp Fiction that just made him a valuable character actor where suddenly... Now, it, was it? Pulp Fiction, yeah, it would, been, would have been Pulp Fiction, but then the thing that made him like the goofy go-to, wasn't that the Fat Boy Slim music video where he dances across the ceiling like Fred Astaire? That was around the same time. Also, I think he started doing Saturday Night Live guest appearances, oh, okay. so that would have been like, it's this little moment where he's everywhere, everyone loves him, no one resents him. He was then what Nicolas Cage <laughs> is now. Like, when you see him, you're yeah. just happy. And I guess it's still the same for Christopher Walken, actually, so that's a bad example. But <laughs> he he has this marvelous uh, manic commitment 
which sells the concept. I mean, think without Walken, there's not a lot of other actors you can get away with setting up the idea that this man is basically committing decades long abuse on his wife and child, yeah. an unborn child. Walken somehow makes it possible to believe he's just misguided. Like he doesn't seem cruel. He's not paranoid. He's just, he cares so much. Like he's doing it all out of love for his family. And so that lets you in. But that also gives you the thing that Fraser is doing. And again, something else that we don't talk about. He is a magnificent scene partner. Like what what mm-hmm. Emily was talking about with Leslie Mann in, in George of the Jungle, where he is sort of matching energy and also finding a way to be kind and charming through the confusion of George. And here it's the same with Adam. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he knows how he's supposed to act. And he's mirroring the stuff that Walken and Sissy Spacek were doing. This sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. They're very proper. They're very upright. There's a way he walks, Fraser, I mean, that instantly distinguishes him from everyone else in the movie because he's holding his shoulders back for his jacket. And that's, it's never spoken, right? There's no scene where they teach him how to dress or how to wear clothes. But you know that Christopher Walken said, this is what you do, and he's doing it. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a little visual thing that shows you he's honoring the world he came from. When you think about so many roles that Fraser's had where he plays an outsider or someone who does not belong in the space he belongs, he's, he's found himself in, I mean, even it happens in The Mummy, where he always makes you root for him to figure it out. Like there is something good and pure. And this is what I'm talking about, I guess, about Brendan Fraser, where you're just on his side no matter what. He, he, I would love to see him play a real villain. He came close in No Sudden Move. He's just a fixer. Um, yeah. But I would love to see him be malevolent because I don't know that he can do it and I want him to surprise me. I think he I think he could. Oh, sure. I think there's there's a way he can do because he he can do the vacantness in his eyes, especially when he's confused, that I feel like could translate into sociopathy fairly easily. <laughs> like it's a very fine line. Um, but I think for me, what works about this is that and what still feels good about it, that it, this is like the perfect PG-13 movie and that like they talk about sex, they're pushing boundaries, but nothing is too gross. Like no one throws up. There's no like bathroom humor. Yeah. There's none of that happening. But they are still pushing boundaries. But you have have this character that you want to exist in this world and you want him to not only be a better person but teach other people around him some of the values that we have lost that are the things that we should be focusing on of like how to be a compassionate human being how to focus on other people having a good time you know as well as you do and then everybody has a great time i wonder if this is specific to to the end of the clinton era um yeah. i've been i've been realizing I mean, that's always been true. Movements in comedy especially will always reflect the era they're produced in. But I'm looking back at a bunch of stuff from the 80s just recently, and you see all this tension um, that's coming out of the ramping up of the Cold War under Reagan and and the, the removal of education and health services, all, like, all this stuff that we're dealing, we're still dealing with the fallout of it now uh, in America and the world. But there was this moment of optimism Remember when there was never going to be war again when, when Clinton and Gore were in the White House and how everything was great and, you know, the worst thing you could do is make a movie like Wag the Dog, which sort of reflects the the cynicism of political gamesmanship and comments on the idea that, yeah, Clinton does a drone strike here. and Well, it wasn't a drone, but then, you know, like, they'll bomb a factory here or there, but that's all you need to do to keep world peace. And it's really interesting revisiting Blast from the Past now and, you know, 9-11 is two years away and none of these people has any idea it's coming. They think it's going to be like this forever. And- they're leaving behind the paranoia of 1962 and look where we are now. I would, I would want to go back in that shelter. The worldview as well. I mean, you mentioned that the Calvin character played by Christopher Walken, Christopher Walken is a bit of a, you know, he's kind of out there and he really sells that performance. But the worldview he's teaching isn't a bad worldview. And it's what I thought was extremely interesting, extremely progressive in this film. Not so much with the transgender oh character. God. I mean, we can kind of go, oh boy, on that. But in terms of like the um, the character played by David Dave Foley, who's gay, no one has a problem with that. And he's just presented as, you know, a character and he's he's there and he's having a good time and he's good friends with... With, uh, becomes good friends with the Brendan Fraser character. And it's not really brought up. It's just he exists in this world and it's kind of another level of compassion. And I, I thought that was really interesting and also very progressive, even for 99, where we were still having, you know, gay panic jokes all the time. Yeah, the, the biggest joke is like, he's gay, by the way. Well, good for you. Well, we try. Uh, but then they also bond over I love when he's like, 
I love Lucy. And then, and then Dave's like, yeah, she's like a comedic genius. Like there's like that those bonding moments. It's This is such a sweet movie. This is just a really, really tenderhearted movie. And I think to me, it's like a perfect representation of, of Brendan's identity up until this time. And I know we're kind of going to get into this with the mummy, but I think like he was about to transition sort of out of this. So it, it does feel like an interesting artifact of sort of like the beginnings of his career before his transition out into the bigger world of cinema. Bill Kelly, who is the original screenwriter of the film, all the dialogue was rewritten by Hugh Wilson, who also directed the film. He was very gracious with his time, and he sat down with me with a snoring pug on his lap. So it was a lovely conversation. But he walked me through how he came up with this idea. I was back in my uh, hometown visiting my parents, and I was in their little bathroom looking at the backyard. And I remembered finding a little plastic soldier you know, one of those sort of Toy Story, you know, bazooka soldiers buried in the dirt back there. And it made me think about like those Japanese soldiers that don't know the war is over, you know, and all this time has elapsed. And I thought, oh, but this soldier's underground. And then I don't know, it all sort of clicked in terms of like the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if somebody, you know, went underground in a bomb shelter and and he is also the screenwriter behind Disney's Enchanted, which we talked about previously on the show. And if people don't remember, it's about a Disney-style princess who gets brought into the real world. So she's bringing this whole wide-eyed innocence into a very cynical New York. And I asked him about the similarity in the themes between the two films. And what he had to say I found extremely insightful. I came to Los Angeles from Chicago, right from the suburbs, but a little bit of this, you know, wide-eyed hayseed. And it's such a cynical, tough town. And all the scripts were like cynical and edgy and everybody placed so much value on being edgy. And I remember I'd read these, you know, the big thing was erotic thrillers and it was these beautiful, sexy, naked women stabbing people. And, and I thought, this isn't like sexy, that's scary, you know? I really thought there's a niche here. I really like the idea. I think cynicism is easy. It's the easiest thing to do. And I really love the idea of, of innocence up against cynicism, but making the joke on the cynic. I love Enchanted too. And like, I was like, Amy Adams and Brendan Fraser, maybe they need to be in a movie together. Like, like, <laughs> like, I would love to see. He should be in the next Enchanted. He would be like great as like, I don't know, like a king or something from from the Enchanted world. Um, I just want to see him in every movie. But um, but the fish out of water thing is so is so true. I don't think anybody does it better than Brendan, really, because George of the Jungle is the same. Uh, Encino Man's the same. This is the same. And even I think the mummy is kind of the same because he is kind of di the different one in, in this group that he gets sort of forced into he's like dealing with that's his like the tension is like the librarian and this like adventurer guy you know like he's he always kind of stands out in whatever space he's in um and i think that that is just such an attractive idea that like you could be a fish out of water but also succeed because a lot of times in real life if you're a fish out of water in a situation it's actually like really uncomfortable and not great. You know, this is kind of like the fantasy of the fish out of water. Yeah, he's capable in any situation. I think as a character and as an actor, you can drop him into a movie and he will immediately be the person that everybody else runs to to figure out what to do. I mean, Adam is not helpless. He's naive and he's thoughtful. He's considerate is what defines him, really. He's asking how to behave all the time. He doesn't know what to do in these situations. He knows what to do. He's there to get supplies and find his, you know, maybe a mate and come back to his family. But his mission is not so important that he rolls over other people. And he's very, very considerate of the natives in the new world that he finds himself living in. And that is something that I think distinguishes Fraser as an actor too. Like he, he waits. You never get the sense that he's waiting to deliver his line. He's always listening. He's an active participant in any scene he's in. And it makes you want to be his friend. Like you want everyone else to be his friend in the movies he's in so he won't be in trouble. And so he can ultimately save them because I'm pretty sure that's where these things always end up because he's going to be the person who has the answers. 
And I don't know how you act that, right? I think you just have to be it. Yeah, it's. I mean, talking about his qualities, he's got like the likability of Tom Hanks, but like the movie star quality of like Tom Cruise, but like the charming uh, stutteriness of like Hugh Grant, right? Like he's got a lot of that. Like he's it, just the, kind of the perfect amalgamation of all these movie stars in one. Um, now, we talked a lot about Brendan Fraser, but the other person we should be discussing as well is Alicia Silverstone, because she's at an interesting place in her career where where he's on his way up. She's on her way down. Um, and this coming off of things like Batman and Robin, where she unfortunately was really blamed for a lot of what went wrong for that film, which she should not yeah, have been. That, that, that was, was not her fault. Her fault. No. no, not in the least. Um, and she went through a really difficult time. But what I think is interesting here is this is a different role for her because she's playing an extremely jaded, cynical Gen Xer where that hasn't been what she's been doing up until this point. She's always been very savvy and aware of her world. And here she just seems to hate everything. Like it's it's, And that's why she has to turn. But it's a really interesting role for her, especially someone who's obviously looking for something new. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the polar opposite of like a Cher Horowitz where like, yeah, she is savvy, but she's also like fun loving and and here you feel like eve has just like had it rough and she like doesn't want to she doesn't want to deal with anything like immediately we meet her and she's like really moody and she's bossy actually and i think that's kind of what attracts adam to her is that she's like she's like i will tell you what to do and this is what you're going to do haven't you ever heard the saying you haven't got enough sense to come in out of the rain He's like maybe maybe this is the this is the girl for me, but I I found it shocking because I obviously I loved Alicia Silverstone as a kid. I like I even liked her in Batman and Robin because I was just excited that I was like shares in a Batman movie. This is incredible, <laughs> right? Um, so. But it does feel odd. And I do think she gets almost like a little bit lost because Brendan is such a presence. And even like you said, Christopher Walken is is in this. And Sissy Spacek, like this is like this is a stacked cast. And Dave Foley. Dave Foley is great in this. I feel like she's sort of the like uh, last thought of the movie, which sucks because I do think that she is quite charming normally. And and she has to pull herself back, I think, to play this part, which kind of makes me a little bit sad. Yeah, I found myself wondering if maybe the fact that Hugh Wilson comes out of sitcoms originally just meant he didn't develop her enough and thought the friend group would carry it. That, you know, if all of these people are hanging around with her, she must be fun and worthwhile somehow. But Silverstone is given not nothing, but not a lot. And yeah, it's a it's a really it's an interesting choice to cast her at all because she stands in a way for the 90s, right? Like she's very much I don't know who else, maybe Liv Tyler you would have put in there at that point in time where you just need someone who is a fresh new face in the last few years that that plays up the the disparity between someone from the 60s and someone from the 90s. But she also feels like she's looking for the one scene that will make the character make sense and it never comes. And I don't think that's her fault. Again, like she's a very capable actor and I kind of root for her all the time really uh I, I met her on the clueless junket and she was such a sweet kid she was she only wanted to talk about you know dogs and vegetarianism those were her like she, someone <laughs> how 90s i love it still what she wants to talk yeah, about these well, days. Like, somebody clearly had told her this is the press junket this is the chance you're going to have to talk to everybody make sure it matters and so when people on my at my round table were asking what does the word clueless mean to you because they were putting together a listicle um, she was saying, well, it means, you know, people who don't take uh, account of the world around them and, and don't do anything to help the people that need it or the animals that need it and maybe eating vegetarian. And like, she went right into it and she was really smart about it. Um, and so I've always kind of been in her corner because the, the very next thing that happens when you become famous the way she became famous is that the world starts to crap on you and that everybody starts pulling in the media, like the tabloid stuff immediately started rolling out. Kevin Smith was shitting on her regularly. None of that is her fault. Like she was this she was this really charming young actor who got cast in a role that made her a, a global star. And then they made her do Batman and Robin. Like that's basically what happened. And so here she's doing something different and she's trying to make it work. And the film just isn't interested in what her character might be doing because it's based on the high concept and it's stuck. We always have to go back to Adam. So she's sort of swimming upstream in this movie. And it's, again... She does nothing wrong and it's not her fault. I think she's doing a really interesting grown-up role, which was her first one, really. I mean, she wasn't, she was playing a young woman rather than a teenager. And um, 
amazingly, like you see her with Nathan Fillion, who's almost the same age, and they just look like they came yeah. from different universes. Like just, yeah. just something about the way the movie holds her that doesn't translate into grown up the way it does with everybody else. And and having Nathan Fillion in there is really fascinating too, right? Because he got the career that Fraser could have had. There's a lot of Canadians in this film who I guess oh, yeah. probably were making the rounds in L.A. at that time. It's really interesting. Yeah, they didn't shoot it in Vancouver or anything, did they? It was shot in Los Nope, it's in L.A. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I know. It, <laughs> Which I was like, if they shot it in Vancouver or Toronto, that would make sense. But nope, Canadians everywhere. It's honestly so, never even I, occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I wonder if that's the Brendan Fraser connection, because although he was born in the States and he was educated in uh, England, he spent a lot of time in Canada. I think his dad was Canadian. Um, so people do associate him with being Canadian as well, even though he technically isn't. But there is also that like Canadian niceness. And if he's hanging out with the cool kids, he would have been hanging out with the kids in the hall. He would have been hanging out like Nathan Fillion, I'm sure, crossed his path. I'm sure he saw Nathan Fillion in many an audition oh, room, yeah. seeing as how similar they look and they came up at the same time. So it would that would make... Tons of sense. Yeah, and he and Foley are friends. I mean, he shows up in Brain Candy with a wordless cameo yeah. that's actually priceless. Uh, Monkey Bone, too. And he's at Monkey Bone Monkey as well. Monkey Bone, yeah. But when when he showed up in Brain Candy at, at again, I saw everything in the 90s at a previous screening, the whole room lit up. Like, they were just delighted to see him. Yeah. And that's that's who he is. Well, that makes so much sense. Okay, can we get into, you brought it up earlier, the swing number. Now, Norm, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you because I feel like you would know this. What Because happened? I'm old, just say it. <laughs> no, 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 because your knowledge isn't encyclopedic, but also because, you know, you were around at this time. <laughs> we'll just say that. <laughs> um, what was up with swing in the 90s? Now, I was young enough to, like, have had to take swing classes, and I under, I remember the cherry poppin' daddies yep. and whatnot. I can't believe that came out of my mouth, but I do remember this. But, like, the squirrel nut zippers are in this as well well as Monkey Bone. Um, they have this, uh, they're on the soundtrack multiple times here. And the only movies I can see that had anything to do with swing was Swingers. And they were saying that this was like a reaction to slovenly grunge, that they were trying to push people back into like wearing zoot suits and dressing appropriately. So yeah, I don't know. What is going on with this? Well, um, that is one argument. I think it's not wrong. I think swing coming like ska was was the thing, really. It wasn't so much swing. Um, but ska had a moment in America. The Mighty Mighty Bostones are in Clueless a couple of times, aren't they? Like that's that's part of it too. Yeah. Um, yes. My theory has always been it was Hollywood trying to swing the white kids away from hip hop ah, and okay. find the whitest thing you could find that also could sort of look black from a distance because of you know because of where ska really comes from. Um, from the from the, uh-huh. from the movement in the UK in the seventies and eighties with the specials and and a genuine racially mixed musical form. This was not that. This was the whitest kids you know uh, with horns and hats and the zoot suit thing. Like that was Latin American. <laughs> that was a that was a movement of its own. And yeah. uh, again, they just you know somebody at a record label thought they could do, get away with this, and it worked for a few years. Um, there was some very clever placement here and there in movies where it's just like, well, you know, we have a recording deal. You might as well put this song on a soundtrack and one of them hit and that's all it took. And then suddenly what was the other one real big fish. They were, they were looking for like, they were basically the, the pre, yeah. the pre blink 182 guys. Like there was this whole wave that led to what that became, but this is where it started. And it is so white and so kind of skanky like you just know there's someone putting stuff in the drinks at the bar like it just feels creepy uh when you look at it in retrospect the, yeah. well you know what the one good thing is uh that it gave us scotty doesn't know in euro trip which is which is the peak of whatever <laughs> this movement is um but yeah swingers had just made it I, I i would not be surprised if you know blast from the past was sold as swingers meets romantic comedy of the hour because it has the feeling of something vintage. It has the feeling of something that is old being fresh and new again and remarketable, not remarkable, but remarketable. Um, that seemed to be where the ska movement slash swing movement happened. Uh, although technically Disney will probably claim it for the movie Swing Kids, which was actually set during uh, the run up to World War II and had swing music and swing dancing as like an act of rebellion which is probably where the swing clubs came from in movies, which then got picked up by popular culture and like New York and LA and Miami. And, and then it became a thing. Like that's the, the beauty of Hollywood is that if you put something in a movie, eventually it becomes real. And 
this is kind of that. Um, but it works here. Like it works here because again, Brendan Fraser can pull it off. And if it had been more awkward, I think Nathan Fillion could probably pull it off too. But if it had been someone more awkward or someone less gifted at transmitting the pleasure he takes in a thing in a movie into the audience and out of the screen, I don't know that it would have worked at all. It, it's really a miracle that this film still plays and played at the time. And most of it, yeah. if not all of it, is on Brendan Fraser. And CC Spacek too, who has this undercurrent of sadness for a wasted life that is absolutely necessary. Works on the back of the Brendan Fraser performance, but it also works on the fact that the jokes and the premise itself is still really funny. And the casting of all of the supporting cast is still hilarious. Like watching Christopher Walken as Calvin do like the bad dad jokes, still really funny. A duck walks into a drugstore. He says, I'd like some lip gloss. The clerk says, certainly, sir. Will this be cash or check? The duck says, put it on my bill. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> totally. But there's, um, according to Bill Kelly, some of the stuff that was taken out. So this was almost entirely, the dialogue was almost mm. entirely rewritten by Hugh Wilson, who, as we mentioned, comes out of sitcoms. He's WKRP in Cincinnati. That's all him. So it is also a very specific type of language and writing that he would be used to. And Bill Kelly let me in on some of those extra things that were there for the supporting characters in the original script that I really wish were still there. Subplots. I had a subplot where uh, Calvin, the the father, had brought down this junky car. It's like a project, like this, you know, Buick, whatever, 56 thing. And so over 30 years, he restored it into this cherry thing. And the wife, meanwhile, starts getting television signals because the thing opened up and she starts watching Oprah and she starts learning about becoming an enlightened woman and and what is an, the big O and all this kind of that stuff? Would have, been good. would have been. I want to watch Sissy Spacek discover Oprah, please. Yeah. I kept thinking about how she had to have a baby, like, underground without any, like, <laughs> doctors or anything. I was just like, this woman has been through it, you know? She's allowed to have a couple more Rob Royce and pass out in the middle of the fake lawn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> she, has, she has dealt with it. But I just... I want to go back to what you were saying, like, um, Norm, about sort of like Nathan Fillion pulling this off. I don't I don't think he could have because you know what? He's too smarmy. There's just this purity that I think that Brendan has that like even when he's swing dancing with this other girl, you're like, I yeah, know his fair. heart is with Eve. I know yeah. he wants to be with Eve, but he's just he wants to dance and this girl's ready to dance. Do you know what but I mean? Talk about consent. Eve says no. And he goes, OK, yeah, like that's there isn't any pursuit there. And she's the one who comes back around to him, which is like. Sorry, what? Yeah, like, that's there's a much totally darker version well. of this film where you don't get George McFly, you get Biff Tannen coming out of the coming out of the, yes, the yes. shelter and and taking the world, uh, deciding he's entitled to it. Great but he call. really is playing someone who is essentially polite, kind, reserved, sweet. People ask him questions before he says anything about himself. Like he's a listener, and again, so much of that just comes from Fraser's decision to play the role that way because the same dialogue could be delivered more forcefully. He just chooses to be kind. Yeah. Now this is all. This was purchased by New Line for Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was interested in this. That's now that's another alternate movie. thing. Can it's you a imagine much broader him comedy, it? right? Like yeah. he'll he'd be. What was the? It was. A, it's an old Letterman joke. I've I've loved it forever. It was a like a monologue joke. Is like what would Abraham Lincoln say if he was alive today? And it would be like ah, Iron Bird in the sky. That's. That's the level of, of a Jim Carrey time travel movie. Allegedly, Jim Carrey passed on this because it was too similar to Truman Show, and he mm. was going to win his Oscar with Truman Show. You know, you can see the similarity between the characters. Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't win with Truman Show either, so there you go. That's true. He got Probably. a Golden Globe, I'm sorry, he? Jim. Good I love you, man. <laughs> we should really talk about the production design because that is, oh, yes. again, something yes, that yes, makes 100%. the world work. The contrast between 1962 and 1998 or nine, whenever it's supposed to take place. And I know they shot it in 98. That is something that you, again, if you get it wrong, everyone knows it. If you get it right, no one ever pays attention. But it is, you go back and you look at the specific products that are there in the shelter and the things that are little cornerstones and touchstones throughout the entire movie and just the way that everything gets not just grubbier, but shinier, neonier and, and, and wrong based on the introduction to the world that we have in 1962. It's really, really smart about that. And, you know, 
that's someone who should have won an Oscar, at least been nominated. And because it was a comedy, it just wasn't given any value at all. Well, here you go, because don't worry, they got their due. So uh, production design is the same guys who did Boogie Nights, etc. So they understand all of that. Then Mark Bridges, who is the costume designer, now is Paul Thomas Anderson's go-to costume oh. designer. And he works almost exclusively with Joaquin Phoenix for <sighs> Joker and all that. That's all Mark Bridges. So that's why it looks as good as it is, because those people are very, very and- good. Anderson would have been making Magnolia at the same time, which isn't even in period, but I bet you they shared a stage at one point or something. Probably. There was crossover there. But I mean, you're right. Like this, the, the fact that they're pulling out, like he's got like Ipana, doesn't he, for this toothpaste? Like it's, I mean, Greece, that's something that right? I would only know from Greece, which they were mm-hmm. making a joke of at that time as well. And even like the stocks and the shares. The, the secondary characters in this are also very, very funny and very good at what they're doing. Uh, I think about the stockbroker who's like trying to hold down how excited he is about these shares. It's play beautifully it's really funny yeah yeah Yeah. detail-oriented comedy kind of my favorite just because the jokes will generate themselves after a certain point and if the audience is on board you can just sort of see where things are going to go and it's just like oh this is going to be good i get that yeah 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 i especially love the like mom's place that gets transformed over the decades like the the place that gets built above the the shelter it's like first it's a malt shop then it becomes like a, a bar and then it becomes like a I don't know, like a grunge bar. Like it just like goes through those transitions throughout time, which is so subtle, but it, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. I, it's a perfect passage of time. It's like, how do you do that without doing like, you know, bad title cards? It's like, we're going to track. And also again, the loss of values, which is what the show is about, right? It's like, here's the degeneracy of this goes from a malt shop to like, you know, skis bar. And then it's the reversal of that. It's fantastic. And people looking for their way, people looking for guidance, which is where you get the cult aspect. That's right, people. There's a cult aspect. in this. Yeah. There's room. There's room for a cult. I feel like it. All right. With that having been said, let's move on to a cult of another kind. It's The Mummy, and that's coming up after the break. It's a good thing Brendan Fraser is extremely versatile, because in interviews, he says about 1999's The Mummy, we didn't know whether we were making a horror movie. We didn't know if this was an action picture. We didn't know if it was a romance picture. All of the above? None of the above? We didn't know. We did not know. Well, Brendan, what you were making was a mega hit, coming in eighth at the box office that year with a domestic gross of over $155 just in box office alone, on a budget of $62 Ridiculous. But hearing how Universal wanted to treat this movie before Stephen Summers, who made one of my other favorite action horror comedy movies, Deep Rising, got a hold of this classic property, they were lucky it got released at all. Let's get into it. Norm, you wanted this one. You're like, I can talk about this. <laughs> oh, I could do the mummy all day. It's it's ridiculous to look back now and think that anyone ever thought this was going to be a problem. But in 1999, there had not been an action genre comedy that does what the mummy does. Um, there had been Rage of the Lost Ark, which isn't supernatural until the last five minutes, but has the same sense of adventure. And initially, The Mummy was dismissed as a Raiders knockoff in the first trailers because they were selling the period, they were selling the the desert, they were selling a lot of images that sort of kind of looked like what Spielberg did in Raiders. But it's called The Mummy, so there has to be a mummy. So they have that aspect to deal with, and no one took it seriously because it just seemed ridiculous. The idea of making a mummy movie in the present day, zombies were already having their comeback. Vampires were big all through the 90s. The mummy was sort of the redheaded stepchild of the horror genre at that point. And when Universal, okay, every time Universal announces a grandiose reboot of their monster franchise, everybody gets very nervous because those movies are set in their era. They are very much films about the 1930s or earlier. Uh, a lot of you know, like Frankenstein and Dracula take place during Victorian uh, periods or the, the the earliest of the 20th century at best. And The Mummy, as originally conceived, is just a guy in some bandages who doesn't move very much, but will eventually creep up on you and kill you. And now we have zombies for that. So The Mummy has sort of been outdone and replaced in the culture by a number of other supernatural or monster aspects. And so when they said, we're going to start our our big horror franchise and bring it back with The Mummy and we're doing an $80 million movie with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, you know who they are, right? And most people (laughs) kind of blinked at the screen and said, seriously, that's The Mummy? And then we all saw it and it's just like, oh, gotcha. 
I know exactly what this is. And so does the film, which is the most important thing. It starts with a mildly preposterous prologue set in ancient times where a high priest tries to betray his king and ends up dying for it. Well, not dying exactly, but being cursed to life as a living mummy forever, the death that is worse than death. <laughs> and only this book will bring him back. And, you know, probably no one will ever find it. And then immediately jumping to the early 20th century where a bunch of idiots immediately find the book, unleash hell, and have to deal with the thing that they've done. And that's relatable. Like, we all know how that goes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's remarkable how quickly Stephen Summers finds a way to make the film feel contemporary, even though it's taking place, you know, 60, 70 years earlier for the audience at the time. No, even longer, right? Because the first film set in like 1921, I want to say. I think so, yeah. But it is so much fun that no one really complains. I mean, there's no point in arguing over whether Rick O'Connell would really be with the French Foreign Legion in that time, at that moment. Surely he'd still be scarred from World War I. Shut up. It's Brendan Fraser. He's got a gun. He's fighting a mummy. Shut up. Just watch the movie. Also, I feel like he was kind of like shipped off there. Like, I feel like that was one of those, like, he had to escape something. So he joined yeah, the French Foreign I Legion. Like, that's what I thought he was hiding Rick there. punched someone he shouldn't have punched. Um, <laughs> or slept with someone he shouldn't have slept with. That's usually the other thing that happens in these movies. And then he ends up exactly, exactly where he needs to be. And the the charm of the mummy, uh, which is also the charm of Deep Rising, which is, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it is, it's a, it's a treasure. Um, yeah. The charm is that all of these disparate idiots are going to come together exactly when they need to. It's also why the sequels suffer a little bit from familiarity because there's just no point. After you've had this adventure, you're done. You can live happily ever after. Let them be. The Mummy Returns is fine. Tomb of the Dragon Empire is a total waste of time. And I hate it because it ruined <laughs> Fraser's back and almost derailed his entire life. Um, yeah. But this one film, it's a it's a miracle. Because one miscasting, one bad effects house, one shot that doesn't hold for exactly the right amount of time. There, there are so many ways this movie could have gone wrong and only one way it could have gone right. And we got it. And so... Goddamn right, Brendan Fraser became a movie star after this. And the same for Rachel Weisz, who has had the weirdest and most eccentric career <laughs> for someone who came up in, you know, like in small British television pieces and, and period films. Uh, but she's up for it. And that's the joy of Evie, too. You're watching, you're watching a character become her best self, uh, turn all of her limitations into strengths. She's clumsy, but she's also coordinated. She's, you know, the, the, the genius of the second film is that they sort of play into, she's the reincarnation of some other, like everybody's the reincarnation of somebody. But in the first film, it's irrelevant because all you can see is someone who has learned to stop falling. And so she's constantly correcting herself, which very quickly becomes an asset because she can think literally on her feet. And watching her and Rick figure each other out and fall in love over the course of all the adversity it's remarkable watching it again and you realize they're just doing it with glances. There's almost no dialogue. There's almost no room in the film for their attraction. It's just present constantly. And they're just looking at each other and admiring each other and figuring out, oh, you're really good at this too. And by the end of it, they're fighting as a team, but they're also like so hot for each other that it's burning a hole in the screen. It's just, it's wonderful. This movie's not for children. Uh, one of the things that we talked about when we talked about The Best Man and The Wood is this idea of classic Hollywood banter, which is different from Austonian banter. Classic Hollywood banter, we're looking at like His Girl Friday, uh, anything Hepburn and Tracy mm. did, like all, uh, Philadelphia Story, all that kind of thing. That's what this has. And so you don't need to see them fall in love because they already were in love before the movie even started. They just didn't know it yet, Fair. right? And and that's just them trying to stay in their lanes. And the, they also are trying to accomplish their tasks. There's no time for love, Dr. Jones, right? <laughs> like they have to get it done. Um, but you're right. It, the, the chemistry is just so strong between the two of them. And they're both so competent in what they do that you want them to end up together. There's no victims really in this movie with the exception of the brother who's a doofus. <laughs> like it's it's pretty, it's, it's really beautifully constructed even for a modern film, you don't see a lot of this kind of balance in even, you know, I will I will knock Marvel movies for this. You don't even see it in, the, in Marvel movies now. No, she's she's also like a great character, Evie, like I, like being a young girl and watching that character where I'm like, she's smart and she's capable and she's hot. Like I was like, you know, a lot of those movies from that time, you'd have that that female character that was kind of just like a like not that capable and not sort of the the teammate to the to the male protagonist. And I feel like 
there's like a generation of of young women that really idolize that character. And I also think there's a lot like I know a lot of queer women that found her to be quite an awakening, especially the scene where she's sort of like chained up there. Like I like I know that he's very hot in this movie, but I would say like she is like with the glasses. Come on. It's like it's there's nothing else like that. <laughs> the hot librarian who can also wield a sword. Yeah, like how you don't get better than that, you know, and then the like the like Randy adventurer like it's it's just they don't make movies like this anymore. And I know that's like such a cliche thing to say. But watching this, I was like, this is the kind of movie I would like love to see to go back to the theater to see today. And I feel like so many movies like even, you know, the lost city of of or the lost city it's not the lost city of d that's what it should have been called. But it is the lost city. That movie I feel like wants to be like this kind of movie uh and it it doesn't pull it off it doesn't have the same charm like everything in this movie i think hits on all cylinders every piece like you said sort of norm like fits together and comes together in this like perfect puzzle, adventure puzzle that you want to solve. I mean, hearing how this was going to be developed, they knew as early as 1990 they wanted to bring back the mummy or some some variation thereof. So the list of people they went through to get treatments from is nuts. So we're looking at George Romero. We're looking at Clive Barker. We're looking at Joe Dante. Mick Garris was attached. John Sayles. Like, these are legendary horror people and especially B-movie horror people, which makes me go, you wanted to make this cheap. So when they brought in Stephen Summers, they were like, we are want to make this with you. We like your treatment. You have $15 million. And he said, I am going to spend that on a quarter of the VFX alone. And he, like you, Norm, was like, everyone knows this is a guy wrapped in bandages. That's not what my version is. I want to make this actually scary, but not so scary that kids can't come to it, which is exactly what he did. So looking at other treatments of it, like the Romero one, it was very Night of the Living Dead. The mummy wasn't actually the bad guy. It was the mummy's assistant who went living underground and was like destroying people from there and and wreaking revenge on what he thought the the atrocities of the modern world were. Like very Romero, here is my social commentary, you know. The Clive Barker one, the lead was a transgender character, so that added a whole other narrative to it, which uh, he, of course, says Hollywood thought it was too weird. So it's like, okay, totally fair. And apparently that one then became parts of Hellraiser 3, like it translated into Hellraiser 3 which, you know, he's in the modern world. It had more of that, like, cenobite sort of quality of, like, this pharaoh got you curious, was messing with the wrong magics and ended up turning into a, mon- a monster and then got transported and all the fun stuff. I The version we got is the version that belongs in 1999 because all those other versions feel like late 80s to me. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see what Joe Dante did with it just because it would have been fun. Um, but fun in a different way, I'm sure. This is the guy who made the howling in Gremlins. He knows how to use monsters and, and actors. But no, no, this is this is what it wants. This is what it wants to be, or at least this is what this concept wants to be. It wants to be fun and inviting and yeah, sexy. How what was it? Um Josh Rubin told me about watching Nightbreed, weirdly enough, as a kid when he was way too young. And he said it was the first time he understood that monsters could make you feel things that weren't scared. Oh, interesting. casting Arnold Vosloo, uh, who at the time was an unknown South African, I think he was a heavy and hard target, uh, was his biggest role to date. Or maybe he'd already, you know, he'd already done the Darkman movies. My mistake. There were two direct-to-video Darkmans, Darkmen, where he he played the (laughs) Liam Neeson character under a new mask. And... Casting him in this is just a breaker. Like it just shatters the the expectations of mummies that this guy's not going to be all wrapped in bandages and missing an eyeball. He's going to be oiled and hot and and kind of aggressively sexual um, in a way that vampires often are, but mummies never have been. And so you have something for people to hook onto in the back of their minds. Like you've seen a treatment like this before where the monster is driven by desire, but... Also, he can unhinge his jaw and vomit bees at you, and that's bad. Um, (laughs) But the idea that you never know what's coming next, it immediately short-circuits the concept of the mummy that you brought with you into the theater and starts throwing all these other ideas at you, and then demonstrates that the heroes are smart enough to pick up those same new ideas and use them. Just that that wonderful moment. All I'm going to do is talk about how audiences respond to Brendan Fraser, but it is kind of why we're here. That wonderful moment where... Rick picks up a cat and just throws it at a mummy 
It is so simple and so perfect. And Fraser is grinning. He is selling the joy of Rick figuring it out and using it. And the, the whole room just applauded. And that was a big screening. That was like 800 people. It was a, it was a blast. But if you can do that with an audience in a movie that's about a mummy, any movie that's about a mummy, you've changed the game somehow. And that's something to be celebrated. And the movie, this movie, Summers just must have known at some point that he had momentum and he could just keep going and add stuff on top of stuff. And it never feels like it's about to collapse under its own weight. It never feels too much. It just keeps escalating. And that's so much fun. I mean, we talk about Deep Rising and 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 connecting dots. And you need to see Deep Rising to understand why this works. Because it is a run-up or a swim-up, if you will, to that <laughs> film. Um, and I mean, like, Famke Jansen, 100%, that's your Rachel Weiss character. She's just slightly more badass than that, right? Treat Williams is doing the exact same, like, I'm a smarmy guy. But he doesn't have the same likability Brendan Fraser does, which is why that works. Um, the special effects. Uh, I mean, Kevin J. O'Connor is there as the exact same weaselly dude who may be on their side, might not be on their side, keeps going back and forth. Like, it's almost identical, but because it takes place at sea on a ship and there's weird mutants, I am slightly more into it. But, <laughs> I, but I love them both very, very much. It's great. They just had the misfortune of arriving like eight weeks after Titanic and um, nobody was ready for it. Well, that's what they did here that was so smart is that they were like, oh, the Phantom, Phantom Menace is coming. We got to get this out fast. So it did cut down on their editing time, but they made sure it got out before Phantom Menace, which would have killed it dead in the water had it come out even close to the same time. Yeah. Although, you know, we you know, hindsight, right? But two weeks later, it would have been great. You could have put it yeah. out after the Phantom Menace and like, no, no, this is what real fun looks like. Come embrace, <laughs> come have real fun. Um, and instead- There's camels instead of pod racers. You yeah, love it. And dialogue, <laughs> you know, spoken by people who are committed. The other thing I think that really makes The Mummy click is the fact that the performances are contemporary. No one is pretending to be a stuffy period. I mean, there's one character, like the, the old alcoholic biplane pilot, who is very much pulled from central casting in 1892. The rest of the cast is allowed to react to things as we would. It's the same thing that makes Raiders work, right? Those are contemporary people playing period roles without any affectation. They're just, maybe they don't swear as much, but they're basically acting like people, which is the key to to making the audience love you and be on your side. But the thing that Rick and Evie share, which makes them, I realize this now, which makes them a perfect couple, is that they're both really irritated at the things that are happening around them. Everyone else yeah. is a little too slow. People can't keep up. No one listens to Evie, which is a huge thing for her. But also, once it's revealed that she is the expert, she's moving more quickly than everyone else. And Rick, of course, is a thinker only in terms of who do I shoot first? He's not questioning the world around him, which makes him slower next to her because she's already ahead of him. But he's annoyed with her that she isn't running when he tells her to run. And it's just this great push and pull that runs through the entire film. And yeah, even before they're together, before they share any scenes, we can tell they're they're right for each other. And also, of course, you have that amazing contrast, which is that Fraser appears to be eight feet tall and she's four feet tall in all the, in the blocking, like the blocking is really very deliberate. Yep. She's constantly just coming up to his chest and, and uh, it just makes you want to root for them to hug each other properly, you know, give her an apple box. It'll be fun. She fits in the crevasse. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting talking about the height. Like I guess Tom Cruise was offered this part um, which is interesting because of course, as we know, he would go on to be in another uh, mummy adaptation, which did horrible. No, we don't. That, that never happened. We don't speak of it. We forget about it. It's just <laughs> uh, stricken from the record. Who decides? Who North decides that the best way to relaunch the mummy franchise is to remake Life Force? Just, just yeah, yeah. That's very annoying. That's not what you. I mean, yes, there were cadavers in in Life Force, but they're not mummies. And stop it. Yeah, someone who grew up uh, loving Toby Hooper and Canon Films. That's who decided. Yeah. Well, that person shouldn't have any more money. That's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know. My thing was like the arrogance of, and we, we're going to announce the entire oh. slate, like their Marvel movies. And then, yeah, before the, yeah, yeah. It's just not, not good decision makings all, all around. Great roller coasters Universal does. Very big fan of their rides. Love them. Oh Keep them coming. Oh my God, yes. That <laughs> roller coaster. This movie is a roller coaster. It is designed yes. to be like a theme park ride oh, yeah. where everybody can enjoy it on some level. Whether you're a fan of adventure movies, horror movies, romance. Is there something for for literally everyone in this movie? Um, 
And I think that's why, like, even like my brother, he's 10 years younger than me. He's 20. He's in his early 20s. And I was like, I have to watch The Mummy this week. And he was like, I love The Mummy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, and like, also, guys, the movie Nope that's out right now, they are referencing the Scorpion King Mm -hmm. in it. Do you know what I mean? Like, this movie has had legs with multiple generations. And I I think it's just because it is that perfect mix of everything you want and the exact opposite of that new mummy that does not exist and is stripped for the Nobody was asking for that. So speaking of sequel stuff, okay, so this has two sequels, as we mentioned, a theme park ride, which is excellent. It goes backwards. Uh, It has an animated series and the Scorpion King uh, spinoff series. There's five of them. And there's a reboot series now coming, which also has direct involvement from The Rock. So it's just like, man, this thing has like Stephen Summers, though, involved with all of the Scorpion King movies. He just, he does them all. He does, it doesn't just take the executive producer credit. Like he's actively involved. I did not know that. And good yeah. for, I mean, it explains why I haven't seen him in anything lately. Like why he's not doing anything that I've noticed, but you know, it's, we live in a world where, yeah, there are five Scorpion King movies. There are what, like seven or eight Tremors movies now that, that little yeah. window where Universal just commissioned direct video sequels of all of their hits. Um, sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. The Rock is only in the first Scorpion King, right? Is he in the second one too? Yes, that is correct. No, he's just the yeah. first one. It's yeah. it's kind of amazing that Dwayne Johnson is okay with that. Like because of, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's just because he didn't have any power at the time and now he's moved on to be so much more powerful. But it given how closely he pays attention to everything with his face and name on it, it's remarkable that the, although of course you start by introducing the digital Scorpion King in The Mummy Returns, and there's really nowhere else to go from there. But no, fine, I'll wear, I'll do another one, but just don't, don't do that to me again. It's probably the devil's bargain <laughs> he made. But there is something charming about this, and the fact that for all the other knockoffs that followed, no one has really recaptured what The Mummy does. Uh, even Summers himself in the sequel, and and um, Rob Cohen in the third. It was Rob Cohen, right, who did Trim of the Dragon yeah. Emperor? Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> it, it just feels like the kind of thing where you did it. You did it the first time. It's done. Everything else is going to be a pale limitation. And gradually, we all just sort of accepted that that would be the case. So it's yeah. good that there was never another one after Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, because there's nowhere for that story to go. Um, and those, those Scorpion Kings are all kind of prequels anyway so it doesn't really matter but like we've collectively agreed as a as a nation and as as cinephiles and the world over that really the first movie does it all and that's fine like i'm fine with it i i i'm okay with the idea that rick and evie got married and had a child although the sequel arrives what two years three years later and they're it's supposed to be 10 years later and they look exactly the same it's like come on just <laughs> good genetics. Yeah, good oh, genetics absolutely. That's because, what it but is. also, it's some implicit acknowledgement that we don't want to see Rick with gray temples and we don't want to see Evie with her hair up. Like, we just we want them to be the way they were. And that's because the first movie is sort of perfect. Like, it's, it's yeah. nice that you add all the stuff about reincarnation and all the stuff about the child and the scarab bracelet and, and there, there's another race to the end. But none of it really matters. And we all know it was really interesting. I mean, it's not sadly not instructive because that's the sequel template for everything that follows. But it's interesting to watch people see the movie and just go, yeah, that's fine. But what I really want is to see the first one again, because that's what we should always want from an original film like that. Uh, that is the thing that makes the mummy stand out to me, not as a remake and not as a reboot, but as a genuinely original work. It's something that at the end of the 20th century synthesizes all of these other genre pictures, Raiders and universal horror films and the sixties hammer movies are in there somehow too. And yeah. it just finds a way to say, no, this is what you love about this kind of movie. Here it is in one box. It's the combo platter that no one knew they deserved, but they really deserve it. And and it's 23 years later, it's still completely watchable. It's just at the cusp of digital effects that overstretch, but aren't cheesy. I mean, you know it's early digital, but the film is so good-natured that you forgive it. There's enough practical work that you can enjoy the stunts. Like, there's old-fashioned horse-riding stunts in this movie, and they're great because they're they're shot and cut well. They're made by experts. These are like, these are a bunch of people working, giving their all to something that doesn't necessarily deserve it on the page. And somehow Stephen Summers managed to communicate it to everybody that this is going to work if you believe in it. And they all did it. They all sold it. It's such... The 
But here's what's wild is that they didn't believe it at the time. There's a moment because, of course, as you mentioned, this is like the advent of this sort of CGI. So like people weren't used to doing with any of this stuff, right? It's still tennis balls and like someone being like, oh, there's a sand wave to your left. Run. And so a friend of Frazier was saying that like uh, Rachel Weiss was tied up at his feet and uh, there's a CD even Summers is yelling through the bullhorn. Oh, to your left, to your right. Hit this. Do this. And he was just like, our careers are over. (laughs) <laughs> like this is, this is the last job we have because there's no way this is going to work. Like, how does this translate? And you are also starting to see actors learning how to act to mm-hmm. nothing, right? Like we all hear about the Ian McKellen famous breakdown of this is not acting, right? And then you see him on screen and he's unbelievable because they paired him with this incredible stuff. The same thing's happening here is everyone's having to learn how to act in a completely new way. And for here it works, but for something like I'm going to go after um, the Phantom Menace again, it doesn't because they just didn't find the same way to connect to things that aren't there. It's a completely different thing. I would actually argue that the disorientation that they're clearly experiencing works for this movie because they don't fully understand. You can buy that the actors are confused and you can also buy that the characters cannot fully process what's happening around them because the whole movie is telling you how ridiculous this is, how impossible this is, how no one believes it, how nothing like this has ever happened before. And you can sell it. You can sell it at the end of something like Raiders, where all these little clues have been dropped and suddenly the the, the movie is validating, you know, Judaism and yeah. presenting <laughs> oh, and by you, the way, there's ghosts. Yeah, Here you go. presenting yeah. you with the spirits of the dead and a wrathful God. But it's in the dialogue. People have been talking about it and warnings all along. And there is the sense in the score and the lighting that something supernatural or paranormal is happening with the arc. But here, like right off, we're seeing impossible things and and incredible feats of strength. And again, like Brendan Fraser's ability to play mystified, confused amusement is what's necessary here. And Evie, like Rachel Weisz is selling Evie's glee at being proven right. So she's got an emotional investment in all the things she's looking at that aren't really there. The actors found a way to make it work. And then the film around them accommodates whatever deficiencies they have. Um, the Yeah, the looking at a golf ball or pretend that this guy has a scary mouth that's just unhinged and he's 10 feet tall. It's fine because the movie is showing us that that's there, but then the reactions from the actors are human enough that you just sort of buy into it. Um, the Phantom Menace's biggest problem is that the actors are on sets that they cannot see. And so yeah. there is this weird physical hesitation in so much of the performance of someone like McGregor kind of sells it, but Natalie Portman, Liam Neeson... They're very clearly feeling their way to the end of the set. Like you can always tell when they're uncomfortable physically because they just don't know where they're looking. And there's none of that here because at the very least, there's sand on the ground and there's a a column to look at in the front. There is something to ground the actors. And by making it as real as possible, you can sell the additional stuff later and the actors still have something to do. And I also feel like this movie couldn't be made now as well because they're shooting in Morocco, which they couldn't shoot in Egypt because Egypt at that point, uh, they were just getting to the end of the Mubarak regime. The re- the revolution hadn't happened yet, but they were starting to kidnap tourists. Like, it was not great. Um, so they were like, all right, we'll go to Morocco. Don't worry, we've all taken out kidnapping insurance on you all. We've got a million dollars on Brendan Fraser and 50000 on Kevin O'Connor. So everything's fine. Um, That's just mean. But <laughs> no, isn't it though? It's, it's, I love that joke. I think it's great. But, um, but even then, it sounds like this miserable shoot. Like they all had to get B12 shots to the butt every day. There was food poisoning. There were snake bites. They had to check for snakes constantly. Like it just sounded like this terrible, miserable thing. I mean, Brendan Fraser almost died doing that hanging scene, you know? That's so right. it's just like, wow, this, the insurance people would not let anyone do this movie now. And I think that's probably part of why you don't get these movies right now because the tension is there. These are people who are actually on the verge of death. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can make it now anyway just because everybody <laughs> would want blue screen and green screen. They, yeah, they would just exactly. they'd shoot it in Atlanta and you can imagine the temple and everything would be very, very stiff. Well, they did uh, put the, um, it is the Thames River, not the Nile, and they are CGI pyramids right on the side of the Thames. So, you know, colonialism at its best, really. It's full circle. all right on that note i feel like that's where we should leave the mummy go watch it it's fabulous um and that having been said emily gagne thank you very much for joining us once again thank you so much this was a delight i am trying to make something happen called himbo cinema and i think that brendan fraser is the king of himbo cinema so i very much appreciate being invited 
on this episode. Thank you for coming. And Norm Wilner, you are having a new career renaissance of your own. You're doing all sorts of new, exciting things. Please tell people what you are doing. I am somehow now a programmer at TIFF, uh, working in digital <laughs> releasing and industry selects and all kinds of other stuff. I, I'm hosting Q&As in the light box and, and talking to people about art, and it's just the best. Uh, I am going to do everything in my power to celebrate Brendan Fraser. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I bet there's a way. I'm sure. I'm sure someone will attend your screenings. I'm sure there's some particular fan out there that will be happy to be there. Well, you guys will come, you. right? I'm, I'm there. I'm buying my <laughs> yes. ticket right now. See, Take this, my money. Take my money, yeah, Norm. Yeah. You just have to start the ball rolling. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I am there. I am bringing my small person if you're screening the mummy, and I will make sure that they are traumatized. It's going to be excellent. That's <laughs> what's, what's childhood without a little bit of trauma. And thank you again for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where if you think things got a little steamy this episode, just wait till we cover the best man and the wood with the fabulous Nicole Perkins. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Emily Gagné and Norm Wilner as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.